Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. Conspiracy theories play an interesting part in history. While entertaining, they also tend to speak to one of the underlying issues with history, that there's a fundamental chaos to the progression of time, and that a big part of history's job is to try and make sense of that randomness. So today we're going to look at a few more theories, talk about what really happened, and why people became so convinced that there was more to these stories. Let's begin. All right, we're here on HI101 with Rebecca Blesky. Hello. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. I'm very excited to have you here. I'm happy to be here. Mostly because that means that we're going to be talking about conspiracy theories. Basically my favorite thing. Yeah, I have to agree with you on that one. It's yeah. a lot of fun. This is like our most common bond right here. <laughs> every, every family holiday gets together and just be like, hey, did you hear this new thing about... Uh, about that Nazi time machine. By the way, did you know that there was a Nazi time machine that they were working on? And that's why they didn't have a nuclear program. Yeah. They were too busy building time machines. Yep. No. Crazy Nazis. Those crazy Nazis always up to something. <laughs> but I mean, like that's that's pretty fringe. I get I get how that's that's a little bit out there. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of Nazi conspiracy theories. Yes. Every single conspiracy show that you watch, there's multiple episodes about nazi stuff per season yeah and it's it's crazy nazi base in antarctica mm -hmm. nazi base on the moon yeah. uh nazi time machine nazi ufos nazis using alien weapons mm -hmm. see how all well that turned out for them in the end yeah so <laughs> checkmate aliens <laughs> yeah all, all sorts of stuff but um one conspiracy theory that's been around basically since World War II itself ended was that, contrary to the mainstream story, Adolf Hitler did not die at the end of April 1945. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's, it's, it's funny. A lot of times stuff like that sort of takes a while to like get off the ground. Uh, it comes back years later, stuff like that. Yeah. No, this was a story from day one. Yeah, it was very, very quickly introduced. Here's generally how this narrative goes. And like we talked about last time when we did conspiracy theories, it's really important to remember that there's sort of a, a most agreed upon narrative. And then there are so many variations on these narratives, mm -hmm. generally incorporating other conspiracy theories in. But for the purposes of our discussions, we'll try and keep it to like the most common uh, assertions about the stories because mm -hmm. that's really the only way we can do this without losing our minds completely yeah basically how it goes is that in 1944 when the allied troops actually gained a foothold in europe again after the d-day landings the ss kind of looked at the situation and went eh, maybe we should make some just just you know some just in case plans in case things start going badly, yeah. we're still pretty sure we can pull off this Thousand Year Reich thing, but it, it never hurts to have a plan B. Look, we're fine. Everything's great. <laughs> but just in case. Just in case. Yeah. And what they came up with was was uh, codenamed Odessa. This is an acronym, O-D-E-S-S-A, which is a great name. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. Um, and it's German for Organization of Former SS Members. I'm not going to attempt the German. I don't speak any German. I it's wouldn't. a very difficult language. Yeah. <laughs> but 
there's these rumors floating around about this organization called Odessa, which sounds straight out of James Bond. Yeah. Um, for ages, as as this this system of of it, it's almost like an underground railroad for Nazis. Yeah. To get them out of Europe and yeah. to safety, and as Soviet forces kind of closed in on Berlin at the at the close of the war, a lot of former Nazi officers did jump ship, which was probably the smart thing to do there. Yes. Um, because as we find out later, they're not necessarily treated the best at the Nuremberg trials, probably for really good reasons. Yeah. I, I understand why they might want to get out of there. And so as they got closer, Hitler started really, I, I mean, the, the dude was depressed. Like he, he had a lot of stuff falling apart. He was under a lot of pressure. You know, it, it was it was causing a lot of like mental agony for him, and and that's kind of understandable. Well, yeah, he had this whole big dream, and now you know he he thought he was getting so close to it, and now it's all falling apart. Well, yeah, that that, and also he knew that he was going to be horribly, horribly punished when caught. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but but for a long time, well, I shouldn't say for a long time. There were there were a number of months in the war there where he was almost delusional about how well it was going Mm -hmm. partly because of this culture of of fear around hitler himself where people were afraid to tell him bad news because he reacted very badly to bad news yes and so sometimes they just weren't telling him things and sometimes he would be told things and not necessarily register them and say issue commands for divisions that didn't exist anymore because they had been destroyed, for example. Yeah. By the end of April, it was kind of starting to sink in a little bit that no, the imaginary divisions are not coming to rescue him in in Berlin. And the way he decided to deal with this was by announcing publicly that his plan was to remain in Berlin until it was taken by Soviet forces uh, and then kill himself. He was going to go down with that ship. Yeah. But then, but then, he swore the staff that were with him in his his Führer bunker, <laughs> which is an actual German word. He swore all the staff in the Führer bunker to secrecy. Yeah. And managed to uh, slip out of Berlin along with his wife, Eva Braun. And through... Uh, a network of of transportation and, and you know tunnels beneath Berlin and all of this crazy stuff managed to get himself onto a German U boat, U five thirty, yeah, which took him, Eva Braun, and a ton of Jewish gold and artwork and other valuables straight from the coast of Germany to Argentina. And once he got there, he used this money to fund, or, or this gold and art, I should say, to purchase a Bavarian-style villa about 700 miles away from the capital, where he lived his life in relative peace, calling himself uh, Adolf Leipzig. Good cover. Yes. No one's going to notice that one. <laughs> <laughs> Very subtle. Lived there in the, the, the quiet of the Argentinian wilds, you know, kind of close to the Chilean border. And unfortunately, Eva Braun left him in 1954. It's very sad. Took their daughter, Ursula, with her. What? Did I just say daughter? Yes, daughter. And Hitler himself died in peace in 1962 or so. And that's the, that's the conspiracy theory. Mm-hmm. Why... Why are people thinking this? Why does this seem like a plausible thing? Because on, on, at face value, from what we know now, it's kind of like, well, that that don't be ridiculous. Like we know, we know Hitler committed suicide in 1945. We know that somebody like Adolf Hitler couldn't just, you know, kind of hang out in Argentina without somebody knowing. Yeah. Like it, it seems really implausible. It really doesn't pass the sniff test. Yeah. Besides that, we also know that at the end of the war, Hitler was not a well man. He was showing uh, definite signs of early stage Parkinson's, which is not necessarily the kind of thing that allows someone to live for another 17 years or so. Right. He was on a, a bizarre cocktail of medications just to help him get through the day. And yeah, just the idea of him really surviving that much longer, even in the best circumstances, was kind of suspect. Mm-hmm. 
But on the flip side, I mean, everyone loves a good Hitler story. And I know that seems a little bit flippant to say, but you mentioned Hitler. It's true, though. Everyone latches on, right? Yeah. Like, it doesn't matter what it is. Mention Nazis and people are on board. They want to hear more. Yes. And there's a number of really reasonable explanations for that. I mean, number one, it's it's pretty easy to point to them as as probably without too much argument uh the worst organization of people to come out of the 20th century yeah there are other contenders sure but man no one's gonna say that they don't deserve to be in the top five right yeah yeah. Um, they're definitely up there (laughs) but there was also something really different about the nazis in that sort of their love of the occult and the mystic and you get the stories about them searching for the spear of destiny and and that that stuff that kind of went along with it there's this mythology of uh nazi scientists going to the indus valley to try and find the sources of of uh aryan civilization and just all this weird kind of mythology that that plays into all of this which makes really implausible stories seem just that much more plausible yeah they're not that out there for the nazis for whatever reason yeah Yeah. it's it's kind of crazy like you know what the nazis were kind of working on like some flying disc stuff yeah didn't work but they they sure did try it yeah absolutely they were looking for the spear of destiny didn't find it but they tried they tried they spent a lot of money on it it's crazy Mm mm-hmm the other really major factor in this in this conspiracy theory is the fact that the bodies of Adolf Hitler and Eva Braun were cremated right after their suicides. Basically, they were taken just outside the Führer bunker, put in a bomb crater, covered in gasoline, and set on fire. Yeah. Basically, the other staff at the Führer bunker didn't want the Allies, uh, or specifically the Soviets, taking the body of Hitler mainly for propaganda reasons. They didn't want his his body displayed, which, yes. you know, if we're being real, pretty much any Allied force that captured Hitler's body in 1945 would absolutely display that. Oh, yeah. Um, it would be a, a, a massive win on the, on, the, on the propaganda side of things. Yeah. And, I mean, besides that, he had actually requested that that happen to him. He's not the only one that uh, did that. Goebbels and his whole family were uh, did the same thing, uh, committed suicide and were cremated him his wife and all six children uh were at the Führer bunker and you know in kind of the chaos of of the the capture of berlin people weren't keeping like the best records necessarily of all the stuff that was going on Mm -hmm. so you absolutely have eyewitness accounts of seeing the body of hitler or uh having heard the gunshot when it happened being present for the cremation, things like that. Uh, there's there's a number of very credible uh, eyewitness accounts for all of this. But you also had, in, in the direct aftermath of the war, the Soviets lying about whether or not Hitler was still alive. Because it's important to remember, the very end of the war is also the very beginning of the Cold War. Yes. And already in 1945, the KGB was engaged in misinformation campaigns to try and keep things as unstable in Europe as possible because the Soviet advance into Germany also involved taking the Baltic states and also involved taking like all of those all of those um, sort of Soviet satellite states those are all kind of a result of how quickly the Soviet military machine was able to advance into Germany and while the allies were all purporting to work together on all of this stuff, there was this sort of this sort of beneath the surface uh, race for Berlin by both sides, because the worry by the British and the American forces was that the further that the Soviets got into Germany, the more land the Soviets were just going to take for themselves. And so they weren't worried about capturing Berlin. They were worried about holding off the Soviets. Yeah. And the misinformation was so bad that when asked point blank, is Hitler still alive? The Soviets told the U.S. forces no. Or sorry, he, yes, yes, he is alive. At a point when they had already identified the body, they knew he was dead. Yeah. Besides that sort of uh, uncertainty that they were trying to foster, they were also trying to make the west look bad 
because one of the first things that they started claiming was that the United States had actually taken Hitler in and were protecting him. They were keeping him secret. They were keeping him alive. To which the U.S. was like, no. <laughs> and then turning to the CIA and being like, right? Because the other thing to remember here is that they absolutely were taking in Nazis and keeping them safe. Yeah, yeah, that's true. We talked briefly last time in, in the... Um, context of mk ultra we talked about operation paperclip, paperclip yeah. where the u.s forces went listen if you find some some nazi scientists that like haven't gotten their fingers too dirty but could help the the u.s advance in um research and development and scientific and medical capacities you know maybe we can be willing to take them in and so this operate these these people went in to evaluate these former nazi scientists and found out oh none of these people are acceptable okay, well, we'll just scrub their records and say they are because this is really important. And right. the Soviets were doing the same, but they were a lot more secretive about it than the United States was being. And so the U.S. couldn't flat out deny that they had taken in former Nazis because they had. They had, yeah. That's a real thing that happened. And there were so many claims that Hitler was, in fact, still out there somewhere that the FBI opened a massive investigation into whether or not he was in fact still alive. The entire findings of this investigation are actually available freely online. And I didn't have time to do much more than skim them, but oh my goodness, they are interesting. Yeah, I bet. Hundreds of pages, hundreds and hundreds of scanned pages, tons of it redacted. But I mean, it's to be honest, less redacted than a lot of other stuff from the FBI in this era. Yeah. I've I've seen a lot of primary sources. They put black over everything. Everything, yeah. And so the fact that the US investigated it at all opens up questions. Well, if they're investigating it, why would they be investigating it if they were sure he was dead? Well, I mean, the answer is they weren't sure because all they had to go on was Soviet word being like, "Oh no, he's he's definitely dead." Yeah. Which they had changed their story by 1947 like, "Yeah, he's probably dead." Best we know, you know, they have these former residents of the Fuhrer bunker who are saying that they witnessed uh, Hitler's death. So they're pretty sure he's dead. And yet they're following these leads of these people who are telling these stories about the the U-boat landing on the coast of Argentina and dropping him off. Or, mm -hmm. you know, they'll find like a man in a, in a village who claimed that he was paid like uh, $19,000 or something to keep it secret that Adolf yeah. Hitler had been there, which A... If you're Hitler, come on, pay somebody a little bit better than that. Yeah. And B, if you're paying $19,000 specifically not to tell the CIA that Hitler had been there, I, I might not tell them. Yeah. I feel like Hitler might come back for like me. Like, especially with Hitler, right? I like, feel like he might be a tad vindictive. Yeah. That's the other thing about him supposedly going to Argentina or whatever. I don't feel like he's the kind of person to just, like let this whole thing go. Hmm. I feel like he he was so power and fame hungry yeah. and and thrived off of that sort of thing that he's not just going to kind of quietly go into the wilderness and live out his life. Like yeah. he's going to do something else to try and like even as a different person or whatever. Yeah, Adolf would, Leipzig. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's gonna put the Leipzig name on the map you know what I mean <laughs> in Argentina he's really gonna put it out there yeah the Argentinian Leipzigs <laughs> just imagining some really angry town hall meetings somewhere in rural Argentina yeah <laughs> um the the investigation by the FBI narrowed it down to Argentina very quickly for a number of very very good reasons number one there were basically two destinations for former Nazis one was to Switzerland, which loves to float its whole, oh, we're, uh, we're completely neutral yeah. all over the place. So many Nazis went to Switzerland because the nice thing about a neutral country is that they tend to do a pretty good job of uh, harboring basically anyone with a lot of money, even if they do happen to be former war criminals. Yeah. And hey, people in Switzerland do speak German. Pretty sweet deal. Yeah. Problem is that the Allies were in Switzerland real quick searching for former Nazis. So yeah. not super safe. But not a bad starting place. Not a bad starting place. Let's talk a little bit about Argentina briefly. In 1943, it had gone through a military coup. And one of the, uh, the major players in it was a guy named uh, Juan Perón. And Perón was 
I suppose you could say sympathetic to the cause of fascism. He saw a lot of very strong advantages to it. And it's weird talking about historical fascism in that it doesn't have things like Nazism tied to it as strongly. And in the 1940s, it's maybe not as illegitimate a proposition for a political framework as Mm -hmm. it seems now. Yeah. There are still a lot of problems with fascism, and I'm, I'm not going to pretend otherwise, but it wasn't quite as... as Stigmatized? Yeah, stigmatized is a great word, as it is now. And Perón had spent time in Italy, in Spain, in Germany, and, and had some respect for the system. And when he was elected president in 1946, he brought a lot of pseudo-fascist ideals to the table. Fascism tends... It doesn't fit nicely on the political spectrum in general, Mm -hmm. but it tends to be put on the right more than on the left. What Perón built in Argentina was more of what you could call, or what some people have called like a social fascism, where there's a lot more emphasis on making sure that people have what they need rather than taking from the people what the nation needs, basically, is a really, really, really simplified version of it. Perón's policies are very very unique and they continue to be um he he kind of set argentina up as sort of a third way between um american capitalism and soviet communism where a lot of the rest of south america was kind of picking one side or the other and then having their leaders uh overthrown when they picked the wrong side yeah um, oh south america yeah <laughs> just so much going on and 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 such a rough 20th century Perón kind of resisted a lot of that by playing both sides because he was confident enough in his system and Argentina was just well off enough that he could afford to play both sides off of each other and really always do what he considered best for Argentina. Extremely controversial leader. I don't want to make him sound like he's a a real good guy or anything like that, but certainly came up with a, a unique way to govern his country in a time where a lot of other nations were, were having a really hard time getting out of under the thumbs of either the USSR or the United States. Argentina and Germany had always had what they considered a special relationship. And I don't mean like, you know, hey, you know, how's, how's it going? I, I mean, like special relationship in like the, the, the actual geopolitical sense of like the special relationship between the United States and Great Britain, for example. Right. It's, it's like an actual, it's an actual thing. Ever since the unification of Germany, Argentina had been one of its stronger trade partners, and there was a significant German population in Argentina because of it. Is there any specific reason, or they just happen to work very well together? They happen to work really well together. It gets into old 19th century politics. We don't have to get super deep into it, but they've always been really strong trading partners, worked well together. Germany always had this thing where they felt like they were really behind other European countries in terms of colonization, mostly because they didn't really exist before 1860 and everyone had been at it for a couple hundred years by then. Yeah. And when they first incorporated, they didn't really mind that. As Wilhelm II took over just before uh, the First World War, he kind of had more problems with that and wanted more overseas um, colonies. But when they were in that phase of kind of being okay with not having that, what they did was look for equal trading partners, which is a more modern way of looking at international economics anyways. Right. And Argentina was one of the countries that worked really well with Germany. Right. And so they had always kind of maintained that um, to the point where during World War I, Argentina uh, supported Germany in the war. For World War II, Argentina had technically been neutral through the whole thing. A wink. And <laughs> and uh, only declared war against Germany, like, in a couple weeks before they were defeated. Right. So, you know. It was kind of like, oh, oh no, no. Germany is the bad guy. Guess mm-hmm. we got to make ourselves look good here. Oh, did we not do that already? Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, well, no, no, no. We are, we are against Germany. No, yeah, yeah. No, they're, they're bad. We're, they're, they're definitely yeah, we're bad. We're anti-Germany. Mm-hmm. Super bad. No Nazis for us, please. <laughs> Except that even though Odessa didn't actually exist, there were these informal systems of getting Germans out of 
Germany. Mm-hmm. Charmingly named Rat Lines. Oh. Yeah. I bet the Germans didn't name those. I would say probably not. <laughs> <laughs> Mainly they ran through Spain, which was still fascist at this point and mm-hmm. would continue to be fascist for some time. Uh, so, you know, somewhat sympathetic to Nazi officers. And uncomfortably enough with Vatican support. Yeah. Strange. Yeah. The Pope at the time, Pius XII. It's it's one of those things that like, it almost sounds like maybe it's an okay justification for what happened, except in the end, it kind of isn't. His, his thought was that there was no way that these former officers would ever be treated humanely uh, in the post-war climate. And it would be better that they would just kind of go away to a place where they had no more influence or or power to hurt anybody than it would be to have them rotting in a cell and then probably executed. Right. Again, it's kind of like, uh... Okay. Okay. Yeah. Maybe. Kind of rather they stood trial, but okay. Yeah. Either way, they helped facilitate some of these flights from Germany by Nazi officers. And Argentina made a lot of sense because there's already significant German-speaking population. That's one of the reasons that the FBI considered Argentina as one of its prime suspects for where Hitler might have gone to was because mm-hmm. Hitler very famously had not learned any language other than Germany. Right. He was weirdly proud of it in yeah. the way that somebody with that level of nationalism uh, would be. Yeah. And so he could live there without having to learn a new language. It would make things a lot easier for him. Mm-hmm. Um, they also floated around a lot of doctored pictures of Hitler with like different yeah. hair beard combinations. I love those pictures. It's so funny. Well, they, they're all based on the exact same portrait of Hitler. Yeah. So it kind of looks like the kind of thing that you would find on the on on the internet in like 2005. Yeah. Where it's like, here, drag these glasses onto Hitler. Yeah, exactly. Here, it's like a dress Hitler's, up game for Take off Hitler's mustache. Yeah, it's it, yeah, it's exactly like that. It's like a dress up game. If there was anything that everyone agreed on, it was that Hitler definitely shaved off that mustache. Oh, it would have yeah. been a dead giveaway. <laughs> <laughs> and they actually circulated pictures that were like, here's what Hitler would look like without his mustache, everybody. Be on the lookout. Yeah. But yeah, so you've got Perón in Argentina, who's also sympathetic to the Nazis. He thought that the Nuremberg trials were completely outrageous and lacked all legitimacy. And to his credit, there are some reasonable criticisms of the Nuremberg trials. They weren't necessarily done the best. Mm -hmm. We don't have to get super deep into it. But number one, they were making up crimes and then charging people with them after the crimes had been created, which isn't great. Yeah. And number two, the legal representation was just like poorly done. Like there was a lot of stuff in terms of the the rights that these people had to appealing their verdicts, to choosing their lawyers for them, to objecting to the judges who are judging them. Crimes were leveled against Germans that weren't leveled against anyone on the Allied side, even though they were sometimes even actively still engaging in the things that the former Nazi officers were being charged with. Yeah. Just like, I appreciate the sentiment of trying to do things in, in the spirit of international law and, and due process and all of that. But there are some fair criticisms of the way it was, it was carried out. Yeah. Good enough. There's also a lot of other Nazis that actually hung out in Argentina very successfully for a long time. Adolf Eichmann was there until 1962 he was eventually extradited to Israel. There was this, uh, th- there was this man named uh, Simon Weisenthal who was Jewish and devoted his life to hunting down former Nazi officers who had, uh, who, who had escaped. And even after his death, there's like a Weisenthal Foundation that, that still does this to some extent, okay. trying to find anyone who escaped justice. Yeah. And under Israeli law, Anyone who served as a Nazi officer can basically be kidnapped, taken to Israel, and tried there. It's one of those things where it's kind of like, yeah, okay, I, I get it, but I'm not sure about that. But I guess yeah. I get it. It's a little, it's a little weird. Yeah. Um, but it's one of the mandates of their like national secret service. Like they're, that's that's one of the things that they do. Yeah. Obviously, not so much anymore. Uh, but well, yeah. it, it was for a very long time part of their mandate. Joseph Mengele originally uh, lived in Argentina. He eventually 
moved uh, from Argentina to a number of other uh, countries in in South America, ultimately dying in Brazil. Um, He died when he had a stroke while swimming in 1979, which seems very, very unfair to me. But, you know, that's that's also a bit of a, you know, vengeful (laughs) sentiment, I suppose. Yeah. Um, I'd like to point out he did at one point go by Jose Mengele, (laughs) which... I'm sure fooled everyone. Of course. All it takes is one little name change. (laughs) Uh, Edward Roshman, who uh, was slated to be extradited from Argentina in 1977, but um, then escaped and died while trying to escape. We don't really know what happened there. He might have actually gotten away. The Argentinian government may have helped him. We don't know for sure. Oh, good. Um, there's lots of other examples of former Nazis living in, in Argentina. So the idea that Hitler had somehow gotten to Argentina and lived there wasn't completely in the realm of fantasy. There are a lot of things yeah. that kind of line up that could... It's not that outrageous to think it could happen. Exactly. That being said, he was Adolf Hitler and... There was a mat, like there was a worldwide manhunt on for him. Yeah, he couldn't have spent any time there without somebody. Listen, Hitler pays you nineteen thousand dollars. Great. How much money do you think that the United States will pay you to tell them, "Hey, did you know yeah. Hitler lives over there?" Yeah. Sorry, Leipzig. <laughs> Leipzig. <laughs> Man looks great without a mustache. <laughs> Here's a sharpie. Draw a little square under his nose. You'll see it. <laughs> You'll know what I'm talking about. Also get him to take off that hat and you will see it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, There's pictures floating around that are supposedly of Hitler, like in like the 50s. Yeah. Like completely bald, no mustache. Yeah. And you kind of look at it and it's kind of like, eh, maybe, I guess. Yeah. Maybe this is just an Argentinian dude who happens to look a lot like Hitler. Yeah. I mean, in reality, his remains were identified, like, within a week of his death by the Soviet Union because they managed to find an intact jaw. Mm -hmm. And using uh, dental records and Hitler's own dentist, they managed to confirm that the dental work on on the teeth matched up and that the uh, configuration of the teeth matched up. Dental records are weirdly good at stuff like that. I mean, they're not perfect all the time but when there's been work done on them you can usually identify the work yeah fairly accurately there's no reason to think that adolf hitler made it out of berlin in 1945 now as a final point on this it didn't help that the soviet union had a couple of fragments of skull that they kept in their archives for a very very long time that they believed to be hitler's just didn't tell the West about yeah. until after the fall of the Soviet Union, at which point they revealed that actually we have pieces of Hitler's skull. He's definitely, he's definitely dead. Yeah. They did DNA testing on them in 2009. Turns out that those fragments didn't actually belong to Hitler. That doesn't help the conspiracy theorists. Right. We definitely know it wasn't because they took DNA samples of some of his living family before they, before they died to, you know, for things like this. Yeah. Um, also, the skull belonged to a woman, so that didn't help. And it's stuff like that that just kind of keeps stories like this going, eh? Like, yeah. It's it's funny it how they the can fire. keep going. But no, Hitler's dead. He died in 1945. I guess he would have been dead either way, I suppose, according yeah. to the story. But no, he he didn't he didn't escape. It was first announced by the the German government, and that's all there is to it. There, so. Yeah. Any any questions or comments on that that particular theory? No, I just I I like the visual of Hitler just like chilling and Incognito Hitler. Yeah, Incognito Hitler just like chilling in his Bermuda shorts and like I think for me he's wearing like one of those Panama suits. Yeah. Like where it's like the white linen pants and then yeah. like a short sleeved button up that's maybe like white with like a blue stripe down the front. Yeah. 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 Like some sort of like woven straw. Hat it's definitely type straw. Thing. <laughs> it's definitely yeah. for sure straw. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's wild stuff. All right. Well, let's take a quick break there and 
up next we've got a pretty a pretty deep one yeah. we're gonna go real deep yeah real, real deep all i'm gonna tell you right now i inside a triangle what's up we'll be right back <laughs> All right, we're back on HI101 here with Rebecca Blesky. Hello. Hi. And did you know, did you know that the United States was founded by Freemasons who are using the New World as an opportunity to set up a New World Order named after the New World in which they could impose their Enlightenment ideals over all humankind and take over the government of every country to the benefit of a very small number of wealthy elites. <laughs> Did you know that? Seems legit to me. <laughs> Why are you laughing? This is serious. Land of the free, come on. <laughs> Who do you think you're kidding? That's the myth. All the founding fathers were Masons. Yep. They were Freemasons. They're part of the secret society that is devoted to domination and world control. This is the same organization who controls the International Monetary Fund. They built the Denver airport with its scary ghost horse in the oh, front. Yeah. They have secret handshakes and they get out of traffic tickets. Yes. How dare they? I mean, sometimes when you build a new world, there's... There's some perks, like getting out of traffic tickets. <laughs> you know, assert that uh, power. That's one of my favorite, like, conspiracy theories about the Masons. Because it's like, I, I, I'm trying to imagine the amount of effort that must have gone into creating a centuries-long secret society. And their biggest perk is getting out of traffic <laughs> tickets. They had, like, a week-long like bargaining session with whoever else over what kind of perks they could have. And they're yes. just going back and forth and back and forth. And finally, finally they agree on getting out of traffic tickets. Centuries before the car is invented. Yeah. <laughs> they have that forward thinking. All right. Illuminati. Yes. You can have the Bilderberg group. <laughs> you can get control of, of the uh, inside of the hollow earth and the mole men that reside there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, good, good. Yep, lizard people, you get to replace all of the world's leaders. <laughs> Masons, no more traffic tickets. <laughs> yes. Yes. Park Shriners, my horse anywhere. Shriners, sweet fezzes, and tiny cars. <laughs> but they do have to pay their traffic tickets. <laughs> good news is those tiny cars can't go fast enough to get one. Checkmate, Masons. <laughs> Who's laughing now? <laughs> um, did you know the Shriners are actually an offshoot of the Masons? Yeah. You have to be a top tier Mason. Like you have to go through all the degrees of Freemasonry uh, in order to even qualify to be the lowest level Shriner. Mm -hmm. So you see one of those dudes driving those cars. He's paid his dues. He's been through some stuff. Yeah. Figuratively and literally. Yeah. But no but traffic tickets. <laughs> Never any traffic <laughs> tickets. Um, let's let's rewind. Listen, the Masons are endlessly fascinating. Mm -hmm. Scratch that. People who have been Masons have been endlessly fascinating. The Masons themselves are moderately fa fascinating. Um, we can get into that a little bit later. But I think for today, we're going to focus on the founding fathers who were Masons. And this one's been around forever. And people got really worked up about it, mm -hmm. like really worked up about it because I, I don't know, in, in the States, there's a, there's a, there's a big personality cult around the founding fathers. Like that's a big deal. Yeah. Somebody's a founding father. You do not question them. Yeah. In a lot of circles, at least. I mean, yeah. a lot of people are a little more reasonable about it, but there's still like this mystique to it. Right. Yeah. There's kind of like a, a reverence around it that, yeah. you know, despite all the documentation of stuff they some of them kind were. of do no wrong in some people's eyes because yeah. you know they they made the states they mm -hmm. and and i mean to to their credit they did some really great work like i mm -hmm. i'm i'm 
constantly amazed when I have a chance to go back to some of the founding documents from the United States to mm-hmm. read them over. And it's like, yeah, these guys are onto some stuff. Yeah. Like they've got some really, really sweet ideas. Too bad they didn't follow through on one of them a little bit more. Yeah. Just, just, just a touch. Yeah. But in, in general, like there's some, there's some great work here. But this conspiracy theory is that this is all a sham. This is all a, it's all a smokescreen mm-hmm. for this secret society who dates back to like the 14th century uh, stonemason guilds where guilds were like an actual thing where, you know, skilled craftsmen got together sharing secrets, price fixing, you know, classic yeah. guild stuff. Yeah. Uh, would get together and, and, uh, and socialize and also hide... Uh, the secret of how to make things at a 90 degree angle. <laughs> I'm not joking. <laughs> but that's the thing. They might actually be even older in the 14th century because they might have incorporated the survivors of the Knights Templar who had been disbanded over a century before. Mm-hmm. but maybe they lived on and maybe they incorporated all of their stuff into Freemasonry. And so maybe it's not that innocent because if you remember the Templars definitely worshiped a demon that they found in the temple of Solomon in Jerusalem. None of that's true. None of that's true. <laughs> that's that, that stuff all comes from uh, charges that were leveled against them during the, their, their purge. Basically it was, it was claimed that they worshiped a, a demon called Baphomet and no, they, they didn't. But anyways, that's, that's not really important when it comes to things like conspiracy theories. Then you get to the 1790s and there was an actual literal real group called the Illuminati in Bavaria. They didn't yeah. do a whole lot. They were more kind of this. They were like a they were like a book club, kind of. They were a bunch of like-minded elites who wanted to get together and talk about enlightenment ideals like mankind being free from tyranny and stuff like that. Yeah. Illuminati meaning illuminated, you know, enlightened. It's, It's pretty tame stuff. Yeah. And it seems like the Illuminati may have at least to some extent rolled into the Masons, less because it's like some sort of like insidious plot to like invade and like spread their world domination messages i'm never really that clear on what the illuminati supposedly do yeah it's never really they're just like behind everything yeah (laughs) i i I love the thing i love about the illuminati is that they can't help putting symbols proving their existence everywhere despite the fact (laughs) that they want no one to believe in them secret society they're the worst secret society ever i saw a claim that which Katy Perry video is it that she's like all Egyptian and stuff? Is that Roar? No. I know which one you mean, though. Well, in one of the scenes, she holds like an eye of Horus up over her eye. Mm-hmm. And that was being thrown around as proof that the Illuminati were behind Katy Perry's success. Mm. Eyes, Illuminati. Think about it. Right, right, right. Never mind the fact that the eye of Horus is one of the most famous... Egyptian symbols out there and she's yeah. making an entirely Egyptian theme music video. Yeah. <laughs> it's like Egyptian symbols, number one, pyramid, number two, Ankh, number three, I have Horus. Like, come on. Anyways, yeah. I'm getting off track. It's funny because when the Illuminati got in there, they found out there was another secret society who had also incorporated into the Masons at one point called the Rosicrucians. And they had been in there since, oh, like the early 17th century, like really getting in there and messing with the, uh, the rituals and spreading their insidious messages, I guess of also world control. Again, very, very unclear on what it is exactly that they were doing in there. (laughs) But all of this leads to the Masons having this fascination with the temple of Solomon and the demon worship that obviously goes along with the temple of Solomon. Sure. And, you know, the two pillars and the demon that lives inside and et cetera, et cetera. And you found out that in order to enter the Masons, you had to take some sort of oath, but it's a secret oath. And why would they keep it a secret if it wasn't about demon worship? So think about that. (laughs) 
also you had to do things and remember secret rituals and Mm -hmm. it's all secret so gotta be demons how well prove to me it isn't demons you can't can't there you go (laughs) think about it (laughs) and so the united states is being founded the 13 colonies are are revolting they're all upset about tea taxes and stamp acts and stuff and the masons go you know what we've been working for centuries in europe having a hard time getting this whole world domination thing going on why don't we just start from scratch create a society that we control from the Mm get-go instead of trying to like subvert an existing society this is great they send a whole bunch of masons over to like incite uh rebellion there were a whole bunch of masons involved in the boston tea party there were a whole bunch of masons that were early leaders in the uh revolutionary war and step by step they're just putting together a society that's all about being ruled by masons it's just how it goes Mm -hmm. and they decided that obviously the best way to make all of this work is like any good secret society embed very obvious clues and symbols everywhere in the government and the government symbols and the capital and all of that mm-hmm. so just fyi the streets of washington dc are laid out in an inverted pentagram with the point pointing down right at the white house yep. so there you go think about that next time you're saying that the government isn't controlled by (laughs) a new world order that is intent on dominating and enslaving all free will people. (laughs) Hmm? Think about it. The Washington Memorial, Egyptian style obelisk. Mm -hmm. That is obviously a phallic symbol in, in deference to Baal or maybe Baphomet or uh, maybe even Satan, not entirely sure, but it's definitely phallic and about demon worship. Yep. Mm hmm. Right on the Great Seal, it says Novus Ordo Seclorum, uh, which means New World Order, obviously. So they put it right there on the seal. Yep. Also on the seal, 13-stepped unfinished pyramid. What's that hovering over it? The Eye of Providence, an eye inside of a triangle, which is a symbol for the New World Order dominating and and watching our every move as it enslaves our free will mm-hmm. and somehow controls the world more than being the government of the United States already controls people kind of a lot. (laughs) I have Providence on the seal, also on the $1 bill. So controlling our money. Yep. There you go. Well, not our money. We're Canadian, but... Their money. Their money. Yeah. Yeah. Blatant Masonic symbols. When the the Capitol was founded, the cornerstone was laid by George Washington in a Masonic ritual. So what does that say about Washington, D.C.? No, I'm asking. Oh, uh, founded on masonry. Founded by masons. Yeah, I guess. Built built by masons. I mean, I, fi- I, f- I find that a lot of this information ends up being posed as questions without any good answers. Yeah. Like you're just supposed to infer your own dark and twisted meaning. Yeah. Um. So, you know. Maybe Washington was just like a real good builder. <laughs> well, yeah, he was a Freemason. <laughs> <laughs> he got really good at making right angles. <laughs> he knows the secret and obviously this all points to plans to subvert and control the united states and eventually the entire world yeah by the illuminati or maybe the knights templar or you know one one of those groups that's in there for sure definitely one of them okay where does this all come from first off yeah a bunch of the founding fathers were freemasons washington Benjamin Franklin, uh, Monroe, Paul Revere, John Hancock, uh, the Marquis de Lafayette, who came all the way over to Fran- uh, over from France to support his Mason brethren. Mm-hmm. As many as a quarter of the founding fathers were Masons. That's just not that insidious, though. Wasn't kind of wasn't that kind of true for like everybody though? Like, well, isn't it kind of like the equivalent of like? the lion's club or whatever now like it's it's a very widespread thing kiwanis the optimists club there is let's talk about what the masons really are they're a social club Mm -hmm. they are a way for making uh connections they are an escape from 
kind of everyday life um, for a lot of people. And here's what's involved for being a Mason. You have to be a man because there's not nearly enough places in society where men can get away from women at this point in time, right? Sure. Really need an extra escape. <laughs> you have to be a man. You need to be of a certain age. It kind of varies between lodges, but the insinuation is that you have to be a, a mature adult. You have to believe in a higher power for the most part and be willing to swear oaths uh, to that higher power, which just means that they're using Bibles or whichever holy text you prefer for yeah. swearing the oath that you need to swear to be a secret Mason. Yep. <laughs> um, and you need to approach someone who is already a Mason and have them sponsor you into the lodge. Also, there's a rule that when you're there, you're not allowed to talk religion or politics. So basically, it's a whole bunch of guys that are just like, Ugh, I don't want to talk religion and politics anymore. Let's, Let's make a club, <laughs> put a no girls allowed sign on the door. Yep. We're going to make some uh, secret handshakes. There's going to be secret rituals. You can't tell anybody the passwords. <laughs> and while we're there, only talk fun stuff. Also, we're going to party down and like eat and drink a lot. Yeah. It's a social club. Yeah. Today, it's, you're right, it's a lot closer to some of the service clubs that are out there where they tend to do a lot of like community service. There's sort of a moral uh, requirement to it in that if it turns out that you're a really terrible person, you might get ejected from the lodge. Yeah. But like, it's not, it's not that big a deal. Yeah. A lot of the secrecy stuff involves um, tradition, which is never really necessarily a bad thing for stuff like this. Yeah. And fun. Like, it's fun. Yeah. It's, fun. it's, it's not insidious. It's, yeah, it's, it's just to go hang out, basically. Yeah, more or less. And that's what it was then, too. It was a it was a way of forming connections, oftentimes with people that you didn't necessarily know, but it was sort of a, a barometer of a, a person's quality. If someone else right. is a mason, you know that they've had to go through the same sort of vetting process that you've gone through, and therefore you're more likely to trust a fellow mason than someone that you know absolutely nothing about. Because if you know anything about them, you know that at the very least they've met the requirements to become a mason mm -hmm. and so a lot of these founding fathers found common ground through the fact that they were masons it's a quick way to trust one another it's a quick way to rely on one another it's a way to socialize outside of fighting a revolutionary war because yeah. that whole no no talking politics thing probably comes in real handy when you're george washington and sick of talking about fighting all the time yeah it was also a way for Benjamin Franklin to go into Europe and gain a lot of support for the Revolutionary War by making contacts through these Masonic lodges. Because he's a Mason, he can go to these lodges. As long as uh, one Masonic lodge recognizes another one, and that's like a, a formal process, they have the two lodges need to basically say like, yeah, that other lodge is a legitimate lodge. We trust their uh, judgment, etc. As yeah. long as you recognize this other lodge you can go and practice at that other lodge in the same way as you would your home lodge. Right. And so it's a really quick way to kind of get into a very close circle of people. Yeah. And while that can kind of sound insidious, when you're trying to raise support for a war, it's really useful. And when that war is built on the kind of ideals that people who are Masons tend to like, these Enlightenment ideals of personal liberties and escape from tyranny and things like that it, it's it's really easy to find friends yeah and so i think a lot of people kind of mix up cause and effect when it comes to the masons specifically in the revolutionary war in that it's not as though a bunch of masons went out and started this thing it's that there were a bunch of people who were fed up with the the British government, who, let's be honest, was really whiffing it at this point in time in the colonies and found some common ground in the fact that they were Masons, mm -hmm. allowing them to bond even more quickly than just the fact that they were sick of Britain. Yeah. Besides which, so many people who were uh, better off at this point in time were Masons because it was like a cool, fun thing to do when you probably didn't even work, let alone you know, have to work a lot. Yeah. Um, if you have nothing to do all day, hey, go hang out at the lodge. It's great. Yeah. We got secret handshakes and no girls allowed. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, Capitol Building Cornerstone was laid in 1793 in a Masonic ceremony by George Washington. Eh, 
like everyone there was a mason it's not as though it was like some sort of like secret ceremony that was like imbuing the building with some sort of uh illuminati power yeah he was taking elements from an already existing masonic ceremony and applying it to the capitol building it's a lot of things about talking about how important things are going to happen in this building and uh you know it's important to be mindful when we're laying this stone that you know the cornerstone is the most important part of the building stuff like that well that's just it though like if if you already know one way to do something and it's up to you to kind of create this new not really tradition because they're only building it once kind of thing Mm -hmm. but to to make this ceremony that hasn't really been done before you're gonna draw on things that you already know and kind of adapt it to the situation well and he's also in a bit of a bind because a lot of the other things that would normally imbue symbolic power into an act like that are completely out of uh the running in the very early united states he's got no royal power yeah and at this point in time, there's a big push for separation of church and state. You're not going to go religious with it, yeah. You're not going to go... Overtly religious. Overtly religious, yeah. There's, I mean, there's this form of religion that's going on in the Enlightenment called uh, deism, uh, which is kind of this belief in a higher power, but it's kind of a an ill-defined one and is often a kind of a, a an absent one. Mm-hmm. This idea of, of the clockwork god where the universe is set in motion and then he kind of steps back and lets things happen as they happen. There is a concept being thrown around called the great architect of the universe, which is kind of Masonic in its origins, but it's also enlightenment in its origins. Yeah. This idea that like, no, people have free will and they can decide what to do for themselves and they have to decide for themselves whether to be good or bad. And that that decision is up to them and it matters, but you can't blame it on anybody else. You have to take responsibility for yourself. And likewise, people with power have to allow people under them to make those sort of decisions for themselves. You have to give them the opportunity to thrive. And yeah, there's a lot of concern that the Masonic version of a higher power or supreme being is this super hands-off, non, like, non-traditionally non Christian god, and that's going to be a concern for Masons throughout their entire history. But this is also the kind of rhetoric that's going to be going on at exactly the same time in uh, the French Revolution, right? Where, where you have uh, churches being dedicated to to reason as as personified through a like a divine aspect it, it got real weird in the french revolution for a while yeah. where they're trying to you know struggle with some stuff but when washington is dedicating this building he's going okay well the ideals that are codified in in freemasonry which in itself is this sort of system of symbols and and allegories for being a moral person a lot of those things are also the same ideals that this country was built on. When you look at the the Constitution or the Declaration of Independence, all of that stuff is the same stuff. So using similar words for this founding, not a big deal. Like, yeah, it, like it's, it all it's, ties in. If you didn't necessarily know that he was a Mason or you didn't really know much about Freemasonry and you read the dedication, it just sounds like another guy from the late 1700s talking about life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness it's it's not it's not that insidious really the eye of providence i mean it's supposed to be the eye of god watching everyone and it's in a triangle because it's symbolizing the trinity yeah it's a very very christian symbol i also like to point out that it was used by the united states long before it was used by the masons yeah the masons didn't actually use it as a freemason symbol until 1797 it does fit nicely into their symbolism, but it's not as though Washington as a Freemason goes and goes in and is like, yeah, on the, on the, on the $1 bill, we're going to put a Mason symbol. Yeah. No, it was, it was, it was an American symbol before. Well, I mean, it was an enlightenment symbol even before uh, America was founded, but it wasn't adopted by the Freemasons until after it was adopted by the United States. Yeah. So wouldn't worry about it too much. Also, it's on so many seals and flags and it's all over the place. Yeah. It's a pretty common symbol and it's about protection and it's about guidance and enlightenment. And it's, yeah, it, it's turned into this really insidious thing in the last little while, but yeah, it's, it's not really about a one world order. Yeah. 
the full symbol is a 13 step unfinished pyramid, which is this this really interesting allegory for the United States, right? Like the 13, 13 colonies, colonies and, and, and building from there. And this idea that, you know, Providence is looking down on the United States and approving. And the full motto is actually longer than everyone remembers. It's actually annuit septus, which means he has favored our undertakings or Providence has favored our undertakings. And nos ordo seclorum means a new order for the ages. So, he has favored our undertaking of a new order for the ages, not a new world order. Yeah. Um, the confusion there is just because Latin can be a little bit tricky. And seclorum means cycle, like era, age, not secular, like world. Right. But, you know, good, good luck teaching Latin to the people who are worried about a drawing of an eye in a triangle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the streets of Washington, D.C., if you look at them, which you can on a map, uh, don't make an inverted pentagram actually um they get like three-fifths of the way there yeah but it it doesn't it just doesn't it's not there so you know <laughs> took care of that one <laughs> took care of that one yeah there's also other like you know oh there's the you know there's the the templar cross at this point if you look at the map and blah 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 and it's like if you take anything with a bunch of lines that intersect you're gonna find you're gonna find drawings and stuff yeah it's not, I, I just lay lines all over again. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, just, just overall Freemasonry is a really harmless thing. And yeah, a bunch of them are Freemasons and it's not that big a deal. Yeah. There's a lot of people who are still Freemasons. Like it's, it's still surprisingly popular. Yeah. I chill out about the Masons. All they want to do is get through all of their degrees of initiation so they can become a Shriner. Yeah. Walk in, <laughs> walk in parades with those sweet fezes. Yeah. And swing those sweet scimitars and drive those tiny little cars. Yep. I mean, that is the ultimate goal. Now I understand why they're all so old. Yeah, they have to go through so much to get there. Also, now I know I'm never going to be in one of those parades as a Shriner because I'm not willing to do that much work. Also, I don't know if I know any Masons. I mean, probably. That's kind of how Masonry works. I don't know, they're works. secretive. Yeah, they're very secretive. <laughs> I guess I gotta, I'll watch for somebody who's compulsively putting eyes in triangles everywhere <laughs> and pretending like he's not yeah it's not so subliminal messaging there they liminal do. very liminal <laughs> super liminal yeah <laughs> um yeah they do they do love to give their give themselves away so mm -hmm. yeah anyways uh don't worry about the freemasons or don't worry about the founding fathers being freemasons you guys it's not that big a deal yeah that's all i've got to say about that section what do you think i think it's one of those ones that definitely definitely got blown out of proportion for no real reason other than that people like to talk about stuff that they're not really a part of so secrets like the freemasons are kind of generally pretty disappointing well people love secret societies oh my goodness they love secret societies they want to know everything about them they do but maybe they should pick a society that's actually secret like they're not to be fair, there's a lot of very specific stuff about Freemasonry that's either never come out or has only come out relatively recently and is disputed in terms of like like really specific things about the advancement within the society. But but the group itself, members of the society weren't were they ever like held to secrecy? Don't they like wear pins that are the there's that one tool like is... there i i know i know the symbol that you mean the square and the yeah uh compass no they're, they're allowed to they're allowed to admit that they are masons it's what happens at the meetings that's been sworn to secrecy and yeah. for a very long time didn't come out yeah and that's the stuff that everyone gets uptight about yeah i mean there's i, I did a i did a full episode on the knights templar and it was the exact same thing where they have or they had certain rituals that were specific to their order. And there's nothing insidious about them. It's just that they believe that you need to have a certain level of commitment and understanding before the next portion of your devotion to that order is, is um, uh, you know, before you're ready for that. Yeah. And that's reasonable. You learn to walk before you run. Like, yeah. Like it's important to remember with the with the Masons that it's all symbolic, it's all allegorical, it's all it's it's this big body of work. They're they're not, you know, 
it's not some it's it's not a dare program it's not some guy being like hey don't do drugs yeah they're bad like that's it, it's it's more refined than that yeah. and part of the allure is that not everybody knows this stuff and part of the allure is that we've been working at where we've been working this stuff out for centuries and we find that this is a really interesting philosophy and a really interesting system but that uh it's best that not everybody is fully involved yeah and 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 that it you know that you don't learn it all at once we find that it works better if you learn it step by step yeah and one of the ways that they deal with that is swearing people to secrecy okay i mean like i'm 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 as nosy as anybody else i'd really love to know what all those things are yeah but I've also read about some of the some of the um, degrees that have come out and what exactly is involved in the initiation and what is said and all of this stuff. And it's interesting, I guess. It's not nearly as interesting as not knowing. It's not worth the hype. Nah. Yeah. Nah. It's just a bunch of guys that like to hang out and yeah. talk about being better people and serving their community and not letting girls in. <laughs> you know. Hang out at the clubhouse. I mean, lodge. I mean, temple. Yeah. Ah, Freemasons. There's so much stuff tied to Freemasonry that I could almost do a, a full episode at one point. It would be kind of interesting. Yeah. It's just that, it's just that the, the club itself, like the organization itself, is not. It's not that remarkable. Not terribly. It's it's remarkable in like the prominence of the people who have belonged or the length of time that it's gone on and yeah. things like that. But somebody, if somebody comes up to me and is like, yo, you know, that, that guy over there, he, he's amazing. It's like, oh, cool. Neat. <laughs> and? Yeah. It's not that big a deal. Yeah. Um, yeah. A bunch of the founding fathers were Masons. That's okay. Yeah. Not, not, a, not a big deal. It'll be fine. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we'll leave that one where it is. And uh, we've got two more for our next section. Got some doozies coming up. I'm really looking forward to it. So yeah, me too. It's going to be good. Next time on HI101, we're going to be tackling two more conspiracy theories. One about UFOs and another about yet another secret society and their successful assassination plot. That episode will be up on March 15th. Since HI101's format can result in some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post for each show there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed on there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com slash hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca. It doesn't just have to be about corrections. I look forward to hearing from listeners for any reason and respond when I can. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, you should start looking for more information yourself. No matter how much you enjoy the show, I promise you'll find even more good stuff out there. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101. Oh,